Welcome to TA1. Everything you wanted to know about Eco Challenge, adventure racing, and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson, and we have <clears throat> the other adventure racing legend today, Mr. Nathan Fave. And I guess before we go any farther, I never had to do this for a podcast before, but spoiler alert, if you haven't watched all the episodes and you don't want to hear some things that you might not want to hear, um, hit pause and come back when you've watched them. That's what all the real podcasters say. So I'm moving up in the world. Anyway, um, as always, Nathan is interesting to talk to. You don't have to listen to me too much. And, um, yeah, he's Nathan. What can I say? And we have a couple of inside joke laughs that some of you will know and some of you won't and if you ask me someday when you see me in real life IRL um, I'll tell you the stories so let's go with the first of I don't know I'm thinking many eco challenge stories I think I've got uh, five or six people and or teams lined up so uh, this will probably get us through the winter so all right, uh, go fast, take chances. Thanks for listening. Bye. Listen. Yep. Let's see. I've got to. I've got to go to the advanced settings. Yeah. And uninclude the audio import because I hear myself twice. That would get a bit confusing. Yeah, and and it's a fair delay going from here to New Zealand and back. Yeah. So, but, oh, yeah, the, I just, when I signed on, I updated, I needed to update Skype, so I don't know if the settings here are, are all accurate either. Yeah, so uh, actually you sound good. Skype's doing oh, its well. job. Oh, good. Oh, well, we'll just we'll go just, with it then. <laughs> we'll just go for it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so first off, I finally got to watch a couple of episodes, so no spoilers. Oh, yep. uh, <laughs> no. Now, I guess, guess what we can spoil. Um, I laughed as hard as I ever have laughed at episode one when you kind of give uh, Bear the the high howdy when he wanted to talk to you and you were ready to canoe. Oh, leaving the beach. Yes. I laughed and yeah, laughed yeah. and laughed. It's like, I've been there. I've heard that tone of voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I should have just been. I'll, I'll just, well, let's talk later. Let's talk later. We're busy right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you will talk if you're standing there doing something because you can talk and do two things, but not when you're getting ready to paddle off. Well, maybe in my defense, if I didn't get on that boat then, it was probably my last chance. I agree. Those guys wouldn't wait for you, would they? No. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, the boat's the boat's about to sail. Yeah, and you need to be on it. Um, yes. Okay. So, what was the biggest difference? Eighteen years apart. Biggest difference? Oh, to be honest, I can't actually remember all that much in detail from eighteen years ago. We actually did a few stages in. Yeah, this race or last year's race, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. 
that were done in the previous Eco in Fiji, and I actually didn't remember until after the stage or even somewhat during the race when, you know, one of the staff would say to me, oh, what did you think of that race? Do you remember it from last time? Oh, sorry, what did you think of that stage? Oh, what did we do that last time? So it became a bit of a team joke um, that I couldn't remember any of the course that I'd already done before. But um, I, I guess there was similarities, but I don't know that – it was a brutal race back, or to use Beer's word, it was a brutal race back in 2002. Like, I, I think at the time of my career back then, that was probably the hardest race that I'd done up until that point. So it was quite a significant race in in 2002, whereas I think this time around, you know, we go into the races with so much more experience, um, you know, so much more skills, and... Uh, you know, I think for that reason, we're just able to move a lot more efficiently. There's not nowhere near as many surprises as there was 17 years ago. We knew what to expect a lot more. And and while there were some amazing athletes and some strong teams in last year's race, I do think the level of competition was was probably tougher for those top spots. Um, you know, back back in that other. other era. I guess it was the end of that first Eco Challenge era. So it was, it was in many ways. You know, it was probably at its peak of professional teams and, and pretty intense close racing. So, so, so similar, but yeah, a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, do you think the fact that there's been, you know, not not as many really as hard, many really hard expeditions, expeditions that's, that's why there isn't the uh, the uh, competition, so to speak? Oh, I'm not not so sure about that. Like, I think, you know, the Pantanal race. Uh, you know, that was, that was pretty out there. Like that probably still remained for me the most wilderness feeling race that I've ever done. And, um, you know, there's been, there's been some races throughout the years that have been at that level. Uh, the God Zone race a couple of years ago in Fiordland was, was certainly off the scale in terms of sort of distance and, uh, remoteness. So, no, I think the difference mainly is, is that, you know, back when Eco Challenge was running consecutively for, I don't know, six or seven years or whatever it was, you know, around that time, the Raid Gulwars was also getting fairly big media attention in Europe. And probably be fair to say that event racing was still a bit of a buzz around then, meaning that it was still quite new. And there was lots of sponsorship opportunities. And uh, I think that led to essentially a lot of semi-professional teams or even some professional teams and and when you get that, you just naturally get the level coming up. You know, that was back in the time when there was four or five you know, really, really, really good um, U.S. teams, you know, at the front of the fields. And I think when Eco stopped, um, the sponsorship pretty much dried up. And, uh, you know, and then people moved on as well. You know, people sort of grew, grew up or grew, grew, you know, life changed and that kind of went and did other things. But. I think that's probably more the difference as opposed to lack of hard racing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I get it. But I guess mm. you know, what I'm getting at is that that was a peak of that particular race and everybody, you know, was at, was after the eco, so maybe they focused a little harder on it. But, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't want to say there hasn't been hard races, but maybe just yeah. not as much focused. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I mean, back back then, I just know in my career that you know, because that was quite at the start of my event racing career, and you know, when I was doing Eco Challenge, and 
you know, winning Eco was, you know, was, was equivalent to winning a gold medal, I think, in terms of being able to take that result and leverage off it. And that's essentially what we did. You know, we we did a couple of eco challenges. I got second in the first one, and then we managed to win the second one that we did. But but that really kind of set all the wheels in motion for for um, you know for me and and my teammates um, that followed over that over that period. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's it's not like you've been coasting for eighteen years. You have won a few races since then too. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got out, got out from time to time. Um, it is quite interesting that some people would almost, you almost get the feeling that some people think that's the case, that uh, Eco stopped, so the sport stopped, and then Eco came back, so the sport started up again. Yeah, yeah well, what, so let's, let's just talk a little bit about the race and then maybe a little bit about the aftermath. So mm. who... Who did you look at as um, potential rivals? And, and I just know the, you look at the course and you race the course. That's all understood. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think just I mean it's it's the same for every race we go into, and I think you know this as well as most of the event racing um, you know listeners that that kind of are aware of the sport is is that one thing. And our sport, like many sports, but probably more so than most sports, is, is that experience just plays such a big part in your success or outcome of, of any, any team's race. Mm. And you see that in this Eco Challenge. And to be honest, I've only watched the first episode so far, but I know that there's some pretty amazing athletes scattered throughout that field, but with no adventure racing experience. So we pretty much automatically discount them as being potential sort of threats in terms of, you know, racing for those podium spots. So we really go through the field and look at the teams that have got the experience and the knowledge. And we're talking about the same people in every race, really. Yeah. I don't think there was any real surprises. Um, you know, we obviously saw going into the race, and, and I'll be honest, like, we don't spend a lot of time talking or even thinking about the other teams, but we're mindful enough to know and respectful enough to know that there's some very, very good teams out there. And, um, you know, Rob Preston and Aaron Prince combination, they were always going to be a strong team. I mean, those guys know what they're doing. And, you know, Columbia, uh, same, you know, just strong, experienced team that, that they always sort of come through towards the end of a race. You never know, you know, if you're there at the end, you never know what's going to sort of happen. And I think, um, yeah, just, just the sort of the people who had sort of been there and done that, you know, we, we sort of thought that the Spanish team, or that it was more of a multinational team, I suppose, in many ways, um, you know, with Yuka from Finland and Emma Rocca and, um, you know, Fran and Albert, you know, they're, they're all, they've all won world champs before. So, you know, we pretty much just go through and say, look, well, here are the teams that have on paper, um, are probably going to go pretty well. You know, there's no surprises out there for these guys. They're just going to move through this course pretty smoothly and efficiently and, and we could expect some good racing from them. Um, so yeah, they, they were probably the main ones, I think. Um, yeah. Was was there any team you looked at and you saw in there and you're like, 
oh, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen these guys forever, and and, and you were kind of like happy to see them back in the sport. Yeah, there was. There was lots of people, uh, you know, bit back in there, but not so much from the competitive end of the racing. I mean, obviously, Closer mm-hmm. came back, so it was great to catch up with Mike uh, in Fiji and Fiji and his team, you know, you know, Gretchen. And and there was other athletes, uh, you know, Travis and Shane, obviously, and, and Danielle um, racing with Mace. So it was really fun to see a lot of the old faces that, hadn't seen, you know, for some of those people I haven't seen for at least 10 years. Some of them have sort of popped up from time to time. So it was really fun, and it was cool that we were all staying in the same hotel. So, you know, morning at breakfast and things, you go and have a coffee and catch up with someone and find out what they've been up to for the last decade or so. And, <laughs> yeah, so that, that was really that was really special. Um, I I thought there might have been more of those people, but and maybe there will be, um, you know, should the event run again. It might bring a few more people out of the woodwork, but it was good, and it was yeah, it was a nice uh, catch up for sure. Yeah, did you like so you know you're all in the same place, you, you know, and and there's that social aspect. Did you like allow yourselves as a team like two hours in the morning just to be social before you put your let's get ready to race face on? Oh, we didn't. Not no, nothing sort of. Deliberate. I mean, I, I think, well, I don't think, I know that our team is quite a private team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we kind of like to do our own thing on, <laughs> on and off the course. Yeah. So I think, I think my teammates would be, would be okay if I said that we spend a lot of our time sort of hiding in our hotel rooms and that's fine with us. Um, to be honest, Chris and Stu are often working, um, you know, pre-race because uh, yeah. they're both kind of do a lot of work on their computers and uh, yeah and so they're they're often working right up until we have to hand our bags in so they're often lose themselves in their room and and uh, but otherwise we know we kind of just sort of try and avoid the as much as sort of the hype and banter as possible really and just save our energy and you know just read books and hang out and um but yeah meal times were generally the social times like i said you, you go down to breakfast buffet in the mornings and you know it was always nice to kind of go and sit with another team and chat to them and you know got friends as you know you know friends from all, all countries and all different abilities of, of teams and things so yeah that's always fun do you guys get kind of pulled in a lot of directions i mean you obviously you know you probably got your friends you want to talk to there's all these new people that want to meet you and in, in you know, they want to meet you, and then you got the media and everything. And I mean, is that part of the reason why? You, I mean, yeah, you're all private people, but does that help make you like, no, let's go to the hotel? I, I think a little bit, but it's it's not that bad. Like I think, well, I don't know if bad's the right word, but there's not that much demand for our attention. I mean, obviously at Eco, there was a few pre-race interviews to do, but they, were, they to be fair, were really minimal. I was surprised, actually. I thought there'd be a lot more. So they, they were effectively pretty painless. And then I, I think, you know, there's, there's always a few people that want to, you know, grab a team photo or, or have a quick chat about something, and that's totally fine. You know, if I'm in the, if I'm in the bike room doing something to my bike and, you know, someone, some almost rookie racer comes over to me and asks me a question about bikes or something, you know, I'm totally happy to give them my sort of my sort of thoughts on things and just chat away. Um, that's all fine. But I don't think there's that much demand. I mean, 
Yeah, there's probably. Um, I mean, with beer there, that was that was probably quite good because a lot of the people were, you know, keen to get <laughs> chat the because of him. So that was absolutely fine. That was great. You know, yeah. um, go and go and see him. But no, we're not. We're not. Um, no, we're, we're. I mean, we're, we're very approachable, and and we, to be honest, we don't have that many people that are, you know, that keen to yeah. keen to get. <laughs> So, I, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm asking a lot of questions that that I know the answers, and a lot of people do. But we're getting, yeah. Hey, guess what? There's a lot of people that have a new interest in adventure racing. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right, and that's awesome. <laughs> it is. So, what was I mean? Did what was the media like during the race? I mean, you you basically had an embedded cameraman for the most of the time, but did they? Did they interact with you? Did you have to do interviews on course or at or at TAs or how did that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's quite a lot of that, and it did. It was a bit annoying at times. Uh, we did have camera crews with us a lot of the time. I wouldn't say all the time, but a lot of the time, and we were also mic'd a lot. So we had mics on 24-7 so they were and, and we'd basically have a recording pack that we you would sort of wear wear in a hip belt and we found that pretty hard for the first few days because I guess you when you're out there you know contextually you, you're talking to your teammates um one about the race yeah what's mm-hmm. going on and you don't necessarily want what you're saying about you know, strategies or other teams or the course or the stage. You don't necessarily want that broadcast to, I don't know, how many people watch it, five million people or something. Yeah. So we yeah. sort of we sort of found that we were quite censored at times. Not a lot. Um, but just at times, you know, you'd want to say something but kind of go, oh, I don't really want to say that because oh, I'm being recorded. So, and, so, and for that reason, there was a few stages where I simply refused to wear the – I'm probably not supposed to say that, actually, but um, that was the truth. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to wear this. You know, we're at a point in the race where, for us right now, the race is more important than the yeah. show. So um, we're just going to get on with the business. And they were very respectful about that, to be fair. Like when we did actually say, look, it's just too invasive, They, the crew were amazingly um, understanding. And, and I think they knew that we were trying really hard, you know, especially for us, relative to us. Like we're not... You know, we're not really out there to kind of seek the the um the attention so much. So so we'd rather not have cameramen with us all the time. We'd rather not be mic'd up. Um Yeah, so there was there was quite a lot of that. There was there was quite a lot. And then it was actually mandatory uh for teams to be available at the camps mm. um to talk to camera. So I think at nearly all the camps I had to go and do an interview. Um, during the during the TA and and that was fine as well. We had plenty of time. Like I think it was a mandatory one hour stop. Chris and Stu would be busy doing the maps, so Sophie and I actually had reasonable amount of free time. And we were busy, but it was no trouble for me to go and and sometimes Sophie uh, to go and do a media interview while Chris and Stu were kind of getting ready for the next next um, the next stages. Yeah. Well, it hasn't like some of the the. World Series races haven't they <clears throat> had some mandatory media stuff or at least mandatory stops? So that's not totally new. No, no, and I thought it was good. I know, I know there was one time in um, a World Series race where we had to do a mandatory email at some point of the race, but it wasn't 
it was party race time, so everyone was just banging out these real quick emails. Where I think what Eco did was good is they said, "Well, you're here for an hour. You don't really need an hour here. So, you know, a ten minute interview is not really going to inconvenience you." And and that, and that was that worked well. I think that was uh, Costa Rica at that halfway mandatory stop. They had that set up. Uh, yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Um, so I think what you, what you're saying right there about not wearing, asking not to wear a mic sort of answers the question that people are still asking, was it a real race? And obviously, you, you know, you step up and say, look, we're racing right now. We can't do this. And they were cool with that. So to me, that says um, they really respected it as a race. For sure. One hundred percent. Yeah, no, definitely. It was definitely a race. I mean, you know, Kevin Hodder, the race director, he's got a huge amount of integrity when it comes to protecting the race. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that, that is just, that's just fact. And the film crews that they put to cover the front of the race are the same. You know, they match the film crew and the sort of directors, I guess you could say, who are, who are getting those shots from the lead teams. They know there's a race going on and, and they need to capture that race. That's their job. But they also know that they can't intervene with it or influence it or interfere with it. And, and they do a really good job of that. And it does require a little bit of, you know, from both sides, you know, we need to kind of, we need to sort of make accommodations for things as well. Cause, yeah. you know, there's obvious benefits for everyone if everyone um, chips in. Yeah. Well, um, you're, you're used to having 20 people around you after. Cowboy Tough World Championships. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's an inside joke for people that were were there. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. So yeah, um, who who caused the canoe to turn over? Well, it depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> well, here's this is going to be the official record. So. <laughs> I need to review the footage a bit more. Okay. I think as skipper, it's ultimately my responsibility. Okay. But I would like to study a little bit closer what Stu was doing at the front of the boat at that time. Yeah. So, well, you're the captain, so you're responsible for the. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So since we're on water and canoe, and I've seen questions about this, what what was happened with the last paddle, and how did that all shake out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a bit of an ordeal on the last night. And like I said, I haven't seen the show yet, yeah. so we're not that far down it. So I'm not exactly sure how they've told that story. But what happened on that final night was is that well, – I'll, I'll go back a wee bit is, – is that we we got on to the um, final water stages. So the race – or you know, I, I, I don't want to spoil things for you, but – I guess it's too late. Now. I I I've kind of seen what's happened, and and you know yeah. honestly, I I'm not a spoiler guy. Sometimes I sometimes I like to know what happens to see sure, how okay. it, to see how it happens. Yeah. So. Well, we we got off. Um, we got to the final camp, and they were only telling us the stage, um, you know, stage by stage essentially. So we got to the final camp, and, and at that point, we didn't really know if we had one, two, or three days racing left. But we were getting pretty close to the coast. So we, were, we started to think, oh, yeah, you may not actually be that much racing left after this. So we got into the final camp to discover that we had one mountain bike ride, one stand-up paddleboard section, and then it was just an outrigger paddle out to the finish. Okay. 
and we had used up or were about to use up all our mandatory sleep. Uh, we were in the lead. We were pretty sure that the teams behind us had more sleep, mandatory sleep they had to use up. So we were feeling pretty comfortable. And at that point of the race, I think it would be fair to say that we hadn't really been pushed um, by other teams. You know, we were pushing ourselves and parts of the course had been pretty tough, but we were fairly comfortable um, in ourselves. So it was like, well, let's, let, you know, we were in pretty good shape. So we got out of the mountain bike ride. Um, that was a pretty non-eventful. Had a rope section in it, which was quite fun. And then the rain came and it only has to rain in Fiji for about 10 minutes and all the clay turns to mud. So that was a bit of, that was a bit annoying. Um, made that bike ride pretty tough for a while. Just, you know, classic kind of mud, sticky mud where your wheels stop going around to, to sort of clean your bike. But that's all, all part of it. And then, so we got to the end of that stage. We got to a stand up paddleboarding section and we debated briefly as to, we, there was no checkpoints on the section and we had to go down this meandering river. I don't know, 10 or 15 K or something. And, but you, there was no checkpoints, and uh, <clears throat> we were sort of wondering if we actually needed to do the paddle at all, if we could just walk down the road with our stand-up paddle boards. But we, at that point, we were, you know, we couldn't see it in the rules that you that you couldn't go down the road. But at that point, we were, we were leading the race. We were pretty confident we were going to win it. Um, the idea of going for a stand-up actually seemed quite pleasant. So we just did the paddle. We thought, oh well, well let's just let's not do anything stupid, get ourselves disqualified. Um, so we did that paddle, and then I was pretty excited getting to the last paddle because we had an outrigger section um, out to the outer islands. I don't know how far it was, maybe 40 or 50k or something. But I, I did quite a, I did a reasonable amount of outrigger um, racing here in New Zealand, so this was going to be a fun way to end the race. And up until that point, all the gear that we had used had been either brand new or super high quality. Like all those Kamakau canoes, they built those just for the race. Wow. All the stand-up paddle boards were brand new. The rafts were in super, super good condition. So I, I was expecting to turn up to the TA and they're going to have a field full of the latest kind of Hawaiian four-person racing outrigger canoes, you know, probably the best outrigger I've ever paddled. And we got to the field and there was this hodgepodge field of crappy, poorly maintained, rubbishy boats that they just collected from all around Fiji, I think. And they said, I'll take your pick. But it was it was pretty hard to choose one, to be honest. It was like, man, all these boats are basically falling apart from what I could see. So it was, oh, well. So I we were first there. So I took what I thought was the best boat. And, um, you know, off we went. Mm-hmm. And um, we started paddling, and that was all good. You know, we were in pretty good spirits. I mean, we're not a, we're not a team that gets complacent. So yeah. we were like, look, we don't know what's going to happen. So let's just keep racing to the end and... Let's celebrate when we cross the finish line, if, if we're still in front at that point. And then we paddle into the night, and then, um, I don't know, it was probably about, after about an hour or two of paddling, we got hit by a, a tropical uh, squall, like a storm came through, and the wind came up, I don't know, it probably started to gusting 20 knots or something. It wasn't super windy, but it was enough to make steering a bit more challenging. Sea levels, sea, sea swells built up. Um, you started to get a few breaking waves, nothing, nothing extraordinary. But what was really hard was it started raining so hard that fog came in and visibility was reduced at times to literally about five or six metres. And I know this because there was a few times in the back of the outrigger that I couldn't see Stu, who was in the front. Wow. 
And so Chris and I were pretty much just, Chris was pretty much yelling at me over the sound of the driving rain. You know, we're out there at night with torches on and to stay on the bearing, like we were aiming for this island that was about, I don't know, 10 or 15 k's offshore. And uh, we're just, we're just paddling blind. There was nothing we could do. We'd lost the support boat that was with us had lost us in the storm. We're just out there on our own. And, um, so it was pretty miraculous when the storm actually cleared after uh, maybe an hour or so of just paddling blind into the storm. <laughs> but the sky is cleared and right in front of us was the island that we'd been aiming for. It was, um, I don't know. You'd have to ask Chris. I don't know how much of it was a fluke or how much of it was, you know, just incredible piece of, um, ocean navigation. But anyway, we got there and we were all a bit shaken up to be honest. Like it was actually quite epic and, uh, I just sort of felt that we just needed to settle a bit and just regather ourselves. Like it was a beautiful night again. It became another beautiful starry night. So we paddled across to another island, um, which is about 10k away. We we're basically island hopping, and there was a resort there. So we thought, let's go and get some food, decent food, get some coffees. You know, go and go into the resort basically and spend some money, and that'll just set us up for the last few hours to the finish. Certainly make it more enjoyable. So we went to this island, we stopped there, there was a wedding going on, so we went and sort of crashed that and started eating food <laughs> off the buffet tables. And the staff there basically, you know, they were keen to get us out of the resort, um, but they organised some food for us. So we brought some food, we got coffees each, and, you know, we, we actually sat on the beach for about 10 or 15 minutes having a really nice meal and a coffee, and and then it was time to sort of really start to savour the last part of the race, you know. It's kind of like, hey, guys, look, we came here to kind of, race well we've done that and you know let's really enjoy this last bit you know we're on on the home home straight so we started paddling again um the swells were still around it was still like about a meter a meter and a half swell and uh, there was some risk of the boat capsizing if we were really really um you know not concentrating because the swell direction was basically flicking the armor up if that makes sense mm, yeah so so it was on the you know it was on the side you don't want wind. If, you were, if you're having a side wind and outrigger, it was coming from the least desirable side. So I, as steerer, I was constantly watching how the armor was behaving. Um, and I'd said to the teams, get to my teammates, you know, get ready to brace uh, on the armor side if, if we get a wave break and flip the armor. Because we didn't want to capsize, obviously. We, we'd, we'd, we'd had done that already in the race. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, so I was watching it, and then I just remember looking out to the left. You know, we're just paddling along as usual, and I looked to the left, and and then all of a sudden I saw the armour, which is the – I don't know how much you know about outrigger paddling, but in New Zealand what we call the two pieces of wood that attach the outrigger, we call those the armour. Okay. And then the outrigger is obviously the thing that supports the boat, that sits on the water. Yep. I was looking at that, and – and I saw it come separated. So the piece of wood that holds the, the uh, there's two pieces of wood that hold the outrigger on. We went up over a wave, and one of them became separated. And I was just like, "Shit, <laughs> that's you know, not good. That is not good." I mean, it's pretty much like a front wheel falling off a bike. <laughs> and then we went down one wave. It happened real quick. The next wave went up, and then the, both of the pieces of wood came out because I guess the the lo- after what after one of the one of the armor failed all the loading went on to the other armor the other attachment point and then that broke as well so then really once what basically within the space of literally a few seconds of me noticing that it had come undone um that was it the boat was over 
um, the armor, the outrigger had separated completely from from the boat. So we basically just slowly tipped over into the water. I can't remember the order of things, but I remember yelling out to Chris to quickly swim and grab the outrigger because that was sort of floating away. And it was a real garage sale. Like we had stuff everywhere. Like cause we had a whole lot of stuff sitting in the bottom of the boat. You know, packs and shoes and maps and food and so we it was just stuff. Right? So we we were scurrying around trying to gather as much stuff. So at that point, I thought the lashings had just come undone, which basically, you know, because when you take a outrigger apart, if you're going to travel somewhere and put on a trailer or whatever, they're basically lashed together with rope. And often these days they're lashed together with just um, rubber rubber strips. You just cut up a, a tire tube and make strips. I actually had spare lashing strips in my life jacket in case we needed them. And I thought, oh, we're just going to have to try and lash this boat back together while floating around at sea. By now we've got no safety boat. They've lost us and we've got no idea where they are and vice versa. So I was like, oh, this is really actually quite a bad situation yeah. because not only are we all floating around in the water, um, there's quite a big swell. And uh, even if we fix this thing, um, I don't know how we're going to get the water out because basically we're, the boat is floating at water level. It's, I, I kind of knew in the back of my mind it's impossible. Like we we cannot salvage the situation, but we'll try. So we managed to get everything together. But um, once we actually got the armor and swam it back to the boat um, on inspection, I realised that the lashings were still intact. So the lashings hadn't failed at all. Basically, the armor, the fiberglass, um, sorry, the fiberglass outrigger had actually broken. Wow. So it was not, it just couldn't be fixed. And that was the point where I just said to the team, look, guys, um, yeah, we need help. We need to find out where that safety boat is because um, there's absolutely no way we can fix this out here. And, uh, yeah, who knows how long we're going to be drifting around out here for. But, you know, so at that point, our race was... Secondary, you know, like we had a much bigger problem on our hands, and that was like, how long are we going to be floating around out here on the ocean for? I mean, we potentially could have faced the whole night out there, potentially, I don't know. But so, yeah, that's what we, so we had no choice really but to get the radio out and radio the organisers and just let them know what was going on, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yeah, that was the uh, saga at sea. So, and and from what I understand, it's because it was the organisation's equipment that failed that. There was no penalty. No, no, there was no, there wasn't. Yeah. I mean, there was, it, there was a penalty really, um, in terms of the amount of time that we lost. Yes, which was quite. I was quite grumpy about at the time, but really? um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in the end, in the end, it was like, oh well. So yeah, we. I don't know. We. I mean. We, only, probably only, only the organisers really know from the GPS stuff, but I think at the time we lost about five hours, um, you know, mucking around. So the, the safety boat finally found us, mm-hmm. and then well, they basically confirmed that yes, the boat is not salvageable at sea. Yeah. Um, they said we'll bring a new boat out, but they said, you know, we'll meet you sort of halfway. So they actually took us back down the course where we'd already come from to meet the new boat. So by the time we actually got the new boat um, and got on the water and started paddling again, I think it was about five hours from the time we actually had problems. Plus we were further down the course. But, you know, we basically had to paddle over water again that we'd already paddled. So there was a pretty big natural penalty, and that's what I was grumpy about because when when they finally gave us the new boat, I kind of said, oh, well, what's the deal? You know, like, do we get any 
time credit for for all this. You know, I mean, I, in my mind, it was like they provided us with unreliable, unmaintained equipment, yeah. and uh, I, I didn't think it was fair. I mean, other people will disagree. I think, but I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't. That's my view. And um, but it's like, no, sorry, no, it's just racing continues. You know, we got your new boat. Be grateful for that. Yeah. Get racing, and they said, "Oh, you might want to know that there's actually two teams pretty close. So, the longer you stand on the beach having a whinge, um, the longer, <laughs> the more chance <laughs> in the race." Yeah. So we were like, oh, "Suck it up and let's go for a paddle." Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, hey, makes for <laughs> it <laughs> happened. Makes for better TV. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, I think, I think to be fair, I mean, I was grumpy at the time, yeah. and I. I hope I apologised to Kevin about that after the race. I but bet you did. <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> um, but I, you know, part of me, one of the things I really do like about Eco is is that it is very much an expedition and you've got to take the good with the bad. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means that things will roll in your favour and other times it means they won't. And I wouldn't say that there's a right or wrong model, but I do sometimes find that at some of the AR World Series races and AR World Champs, you know, they lose a little bit of that expeditionary sort of feel to me. You know, when teams are getting penalised for not having a pair of gloves or someone's protesting because someone was carrying someone else's pack and that's against the rules or, you know, someone didn't have their bib on properly or something, you know, and they get caught up in these, to me, things that are not really that relevant if, if it's a true expedition. And I think Eco are very good at retaining that expedition feel and going, you know what, you know, like, like Dan, for example, in um, Bend, Oregon Racing, you know, like he spent half of that first night without his race bib on because he was so hot. Yeah. And and if, if you're an expedition, that is a very sensible thing to do. Whereas in a World Series race, you know, you risk getting a penalty for that. Um, so, you know, I think... I think I'm not saying that I think one is right and one is wrong, but I do think that Eco do a very good job of going, Hey, these guys are on expedition. Um, let's not get let's not get obsessed with details, you know, let's just let the show go on. Yeah. Did when you like at pre race and meetings and talking to people, did they I mean, did they frame it as an expedition or did they frame it as a race? Or did, did oh, I think uh, I don't really know. I, I, I'd probably say more of an expedition, I think. I think they, you know, there's this big course. They were certainly talking it up as it, it may may be impossible to finish. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, and, and I think just the general, you know, I, I would say more a more expedition feel throughout the whole event, I think. And, and that's probably comes through in the show, eh? Like it's, um, you know, from what I understand, it's, I mean, it's not, the race is part of it. But yeah. a lot of part, a lot of it is these people that the wider audience can relate to, um, getting out and, and doing something uh, quite extraordinary, and uh, and I think that aligns itself more with with the sort of essentially what is an organised expedition as opposed to a sporting event race. Yeah, yeah, I, that's kind of the vibe I've got from from what I've watched. So, other than other than swimming in the ocean. What's what's like what's the thing that you tell people about when they say, well, what, what was Eco Challenge like? Was is there a moment or a place or something that that 
comes to mind right away? Well, unfortunately, that last night was such an ordeal that it's pretty hard to kind of get that out of front of mind whenever I yeah. think of the race. But I, I, there were some great, we had some, we had some really nice team, times out there as a team. I mean, we always do. And uh, we had one really fun stage where you were allowed to employ the services of locals. And I think this was because in 2002, they had a similar stage where we basically had to go between these villages and the village people got so excited about the race. They started carrying people's packs and showing them the way. And then some of the village people actually had horses. So they were giving teams horses to ride and it kind of got out of control. Yeah. And um, I think this time around they said, rather than try and sort of manage this, I'm guessing they said, let's just turn it around and just say to the team's, it's fair game. If you can get a village person to guide you or carry your pack or to get a horse for you or a bicycle, then go for it. It was only between these two checkpoints, essentially. Yeah. And um, so we had these Fijian guys running with us, and it was just good fun. Eh? They were just – they sort of joined our team for the afternoon, and we were sharing food with them and drink and just lots of banter. And, you know, it was just really fun – I guess just escape from the reality of the race for a while, just to just to enjoy being somewhere different with some different people and have a bit of fun. But uh, you know, I think I, I mean I, I I'll be honest in that you know we I don't really remember anything being that difficult in that race, and most of the time. You know, our team was cruising at a pretty comfortable speed, um, which made it really pleasant. And part of the reason for that was is that we had dark zones on the second and third nights. So we had a ton of sleep. And the race, in many ways, to me, didn't really feel like it started until we cleared those dark zones. So in that sense, it actually felt like quite a short race. Uh, and we'd had a ton of sleep. So... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a bunch of people just like yelling at you right now. Like, we didn't get any sleep. How did he do that? <laughs> All right. I, yeah, that first night I think we had ten hours. Um, the first dark zone. Wow. And the second dark zone I think was just about. Oh, it wasn't quite that much, but it was still a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that, I mean that was kind of. It probably would have been better for us from a racing point of view not to have those dark zones because it sort of felt like. Every time we sort of start building up a lead, it got basically brought back together again. Yeah. But it's like, oh well, that's the race, and dark zones are part of it. And if you if you want to have decent river sections, then you just have to have dark zones. So, it's just the way it is. That's the way it works. So, yeah. um, what what does the community, the racers, the organizers, the adventure race world need to do now? How do how do they how do we maximize the potential? That's a simple question, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a good question. I, I mean, I I think it's just about identifying the pathways for people that get excited, mm -hmm. and just make them realize, will help them realize that there's plenty of opportunities out there, and just direct people in what to do. You know, like. In terms of, I mean, I've already had a couple of people contact me saying, you know, how do I get into this stuff? Yeah. And, and it's pretty simple, really. The first thing is, like, just gather the skills together for the disciplines that you can see. 
So, yeah, go get a mountain bike, go riding, learn to navigate, start pedaling, do these things. And my understanding is that most parts of the developed world now, there's event racing opportunities on, you know, with small events around the place and mm-hmm. and things. Or so, I think it's just a, just about increasing increasing that awareness really that um, the sport actually exists. Um, you know, and then, and then and then I mean that that would be the short answer. Yeah, is to just to kind of be you know welcoming to these folks and direct them forth into these other areas and say, hey, look, there's an event going on. The, the, the people there will love to see you. Put a team together, get amongst it. Yeah. And then I think yeah. at a bigger level, I guess in terms of a, yeah, I guess, you know, in terms of a governing, some sort of governance, I think adventure racing probably needs to do something, you know, in the next few years. If Eco Challenge can, continues and continues to build the interest around the sport the sport probably needs to get a bit more organised in terms of having, uh, you know, a more of a official sort of structure. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I hear, I hear what you're saying. So, yeah, mm. we do that. So, um, let's 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 wrap this up. So, so here's the first thing. Next time you're on, if I say, what was your worst six hours? Are you going to say floating in the ocean with a broken? Rat broken canoe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was only an hour in the uh, hour in the ocean, and then probably a couple of hours in a, sitting on the floor of an aluminium safety boat, wondering what the hell was going on. Yeah. That's probably even but, worse. Sitting in the, yeah, the boat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Shivering away. And so, you know, Patagonia next year sometime. Are are you guys going to go defend? I guess so. I mean, I, I, I just sort of somewhat reluctantly of making sort of making too many sort of goals at the moment. I think partly because of the cold COVID thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we've had so many things cancel and postpone. Um, I mean, obviously here in New Zealand, but plus globally, I, I don't know. It's sort of hard to get my head around um, sort of making too many long-term plans until we sort of know what's going on. But, um, but yeah, I think yeah, Patagonia maybe. I think it'll it'll probably. A lot of it for me these days, and I think I've said to you this before, that you know races I can get to are largely dictated to about what months I can actually free myself up from. There's some months in New Zealand I just can't leave the country, so it depends a bit on on when it is and and sort of things. So yeah, I wouldn't. Oh, yeah, I just I'm probably a bit reluctant to commit to too much at this stage. But yeah, you're, yeah. you're not not going. <laughs> we could say that. You might go, yeah, but you're not not going right now. Not, not at this stage, no. So I guess I need to know once I know the official date, yeah, and um, sort of what's involved and how it's working and stuff. Um, yeah, you know, there's a few things. So, okay, so here's here's the last question: when you're when you're watching, when you watch the first episode, are you watching with the family, or do they like not care, or have they heard? Yeah. <laughs> No, we did. We sat down on Sunday night, um, my wife and um, my three kids and a friend of our family friend and watched the first episode. Yeah. So, yeah, we did it, yeah. And uh, Do they – yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've been around it so much, but do they still kind of look – when they watch that, say, really, that's what you're doing? Or do they, do they really know the sport? They know the sport. Okay. Uh, they know a lot of the people in there, and they to be 
you know, they, I mean, I, I don't have any doubts whatsoever that our family could have done that course in Fiji in the allocated time. I mean, my kids have done way harder trips than that. And they know that. They look at that and go, "This would be fun," and um, and they laugh. They, they they most of the time watching that first episode, they are laughing at um, at how hard some people are finding what they perceive as actually something quite quite easy. Yeah. Um, which is a bit of naivety on their part, but it's not it's, it's not on other areas as well. I mean, they've yeah. been doing challenging wilderness trips, you know, their whole lives, really, literally their whole lives. So yeah. they're a bit of a different. Um, Got a different perspective perspective on it, but they're enjoying it, and um, and it's cool. They do know, you know, they do know a lot of the teams and a lot of the people because I've been to World Champs before a few yeah. times and sort of followed the stuff. So, so um, yeah, it's a bit of it's pretty funny. I think we're I think we're I think we're watching episode two tonight. Actually, I'm not entirely sure what's happening, but okay, yeah, I think, yeah. I think yeah. So, you're, so you're just kind of spreading them out. You, you know, you didn't sit there. For, I mean, I, I can't believe people actually like literally sat for ten hours and. And watch the whole thing. So, more power to them, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's awesome if they can. I, there's no way I could do that. I'd, uh, but maybe because I still was the year and knew what happened. It's, it's um, yeah. you know, there's no rush to kind of see it unfold. But um, but we're just busy with other stuff. We've all been away in the mountains and climbing and biking and stuff all weekend and things. So, I haven't really had a chance yet to to sort of make too much time to watch them. But they'll be there for a while, and we'll definitely get get through them. So, yeah, it's nice to have something to look forward to as well, something to look forward to sitting down and watching. Very cool. That's the way we are here too. So, all right, I'm going to let you go. So are you locked down, or can you get out now? We are in two stages of lockdown in New Zealand. Um, where I live, we are in level two, which is pretty much life as normal with a couple of minor restrictions but really don't affect me at the moment. In Auckland, our biggest city, they are in a level three lockdown, so they are essentially stuck at home for um, about another week. So I don't know how much you know, but we've just gone just over 100 days without a COVID case, and then four cases popped up last week as you got through the borders, the pesky little virus. So it's about 20 cases in New Zealand right now or something. So, um, so yeah, we're kind of... Trying to rid, 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 get rid of those things and then get back to some level of normality, but we certainly can't complain. Like we've we've had it pretty good here for um, well for a hundred days. So yeah, well that's good. So glad you. I'm glad your country has some leadership to take care of that for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel for you guys. <laughs> yeah. So I guess yeah. maybe that's all we should say. Uh, well, yeah. as always. Yeah, <laughs> my 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 listener numbers will go up this week, and I appreciate it. But uh, so so thanks for sharing and telling us. And uh, people that come on are going to have to have some good stories to top yours. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there'll be there'll be plenty of good stories. So I enjoy um, I enjoy listening to them. Once uh, once our grass starts growing out here, and I have to start doing more lawn mowing, I'll uh, I'll start listening to the um to the future shows so perfect thanks yeah go on all right okay randy thank you cheers right, bye bye
taken my vows and my curtain calls. You brought me fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. I thank you all. But it's been a bed of roses. We love you!